Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This keynote address was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features a conversation between Nobel laureates Seamus Heaney and Derek Walcott and is moderated by Rosanna Warren. Welcome. A cold, snowy, sculling night, and it's so great to be in this warm place. So welcome to AWP. Welcome to this amazing keynote. I'm Judith Baumel, president of AWP. Yay, AWP. This is the largest conference we've ever had. We have 775 book fair booths, 12,000 people at this conference. Um, this is the best literary party ever invented, so it's great. <laughs> and we're all in the VIP lounge now. We want to thank Bath Spa University for hosting the keynote, their support for AWP over the years, and in particular for this extraordinary event that was um, so hard to put together and so rewarding, uh, is terrific. So Bath Spa University, are you up there, Bath Spa? It'll, it'll flash through a round of applause for their extraordinary support. They're proving that literature is an international... Um, international way of joining people, and so too these wonderful people. So before uh, we get started, I want to introduce Steve May from Bath Spy University, who will introduce our terrific presenters. Thanks. Uh, thank you all very much. I sh I'm sure you all came to hear me tonight. Um, but this is the ninth year that uh, Bath Spa University has been involved uh, or sponsored uh, the AWP conference. Um, as an this is the commercial. As an institution with the largest and best creative writing programs in the UK and possibly the world, um, <laughs> Bath Spa has supported some great events in the past, but um, nothing can compare with, with this one. Um, who could ask for more? Uh, not one, but two Nobel laureates. So, without more ado, can I, on behalf of Bath Spa University UK, introduce our host for this wonderful keynote conversation, herself a distinguished scholar, award-winning poet, former Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, and currently teacher at the University of Chicago, Rosanna Warren. Thank you. Seamus Heaney and Derek Walcott come here in the glow of the Nobel and many other prizes and honors, national and international, but you don't need me to tell you that. And you can Google the immense lists of their book titles. So let's leave the curricula vitae to the internet and concentrate on poetry. No better way to do that than to be in the presence of these two, at once masters and devotees of the art. 
Seamus Heaney, as we learn from his poem Terminus in The Hall Lantern and in many other poems, was born in a farmhouse, Moss Bawn in Northern Ireland, into a state of division. No wonder, he writes, that he had second thoughts. As he hoked or dug and scrabbled in the dirt, he found both acorns and rusted bolts, nature and technology. His language was divided between the local country vocabulary and standard English, between the Catholic farm world of his father's family and the Protestant shop world across the river. Out of this primal state of division, but also of deep rootedness, Heaney has, in the course of 14 books of poems and many other books of essays and translations, made a generous wholeness in the imagination. He has been both an archaeologist of ancient words and myths and a diviner, a seer into the future. And while we find a strong impulse toward reconciliation and blessing in his work, he has written of poetry as a symbolic resolution of opposing truths, he has never turned his eye from the savage or the horrific. He has never sugar-coated sacrifice. In the heft of each word, in the torque of each line, he teaches us to weigh what blessing costs. Derek Walcott, on the Caribbean island of St. Lucia, was also born into a state of division. As his sailor character, Shebein, proclaims in the poem, The Schooner Flight, I have Dutch, nigger, and English in me, and either I'm nobody or I'm a nation. In the course of his 14 books of poems and his whole other majestic oeuvre as playwright, Walcott has played the English of Shakespeare, Marlowe, Keats, and Hardy off the patois of St. Lucia, a condition of plenitude which has been both an extravagant joy and a source of suffering, as when the trees of his island admonish him in the poem Cul-de-sac Valley, exhaling trees refresh memory with their smell, bois canaux, bois campèche, hissing, whatever you wish from us will never be, your words is English, is a different tree. Walcott is also a painter of powerful and subtle watercolors. All his life in words and in paint, he has been trying to give form to the islands he loves and knows, to the condition of exile from those islands, to the pain of their history, not least of which is the history of slavery, to their essential beauty, which he keeps seeing in relation to and indifference from the classical standards of European beauty. He has, let us not forget, rewritten the Odyssey in the poem, epic poem, Omeros. And like Seamus Heaney, he has never, he has not shied from chronicling horror. And like Heaney, he has reinvented a language for blessing. I have asked each of our masters to start by reading a poem to give us tuning forks to set a pitch for our thoughts and their conversation will develop from there, and they will conclude by each reading one final poem. Thank you.
Thanks, Garrett, to read first. The sun has fired my face to terracotta. It carries the heat from his kiln all through the house. But I cherish its wrinkles as much as those on blue water. Nights drill little holes around a soft-toothed cactus. A furnace has curled the knives of the oleander. And a branch of the logwood blurs with wild characters. A stone house waits on the steps. Its white porch blazes. I tell you a promise brought to me by the surf. You shall see transparent Helen pass like a candle flame in sunlight, weightless as wood smoke that hazes the sand with no shadow. My palms have been sliced by the twine of the craft I have pulled out for more than 40 years. My ionia is the smell of burnt grass, the scorched handled of a cistern in August, squeaking to rusty islands. The lines I love have all the knots left in. Through the stunned afternoon when it's too hot to think, and the muse of this inland ocean still waits for a name, and from the salt, dark room, the tight horizon line catches nothing. I wait, chairs sweat, paper crumples the floor, a lizard gasps on the wall. The sea glares like zinc. Then in the door lights, not Nike loosening her sandal, but a girl slapping sand from her foot, one hand on the frame. Thank you. Oysters. Our shells clacked on the plates. My tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. As I, saw, as I tasted the salty Pleiades, Orion dipped his foot into the water. Alive and violated, they lay on their beds of ice, bivalves, the split bulb and philandering sigh of ocean. Millions of them ripped and shucked and scattered. We had driven to that coast through flowers and limestone, and there we were, toasting friendship, laying down a perfect memory in the cool of thatch and crockery. Over the Alps, packed deep in hay and snow, the Romans hauled their oysters south to Rome. I saw damp panniers disgorge the frond-lipped, brine-stung glut of privilege and was angry that my trust could not repose in the clear light like poetry or freedom leaning in from sea. I ate the day deliberately that its tying might quicken me all into verb, pure verb. Thank you. So first I wanted to ask you two about acts of initiation, the, the way each of these poems that you've read 
is about initiating a poem, but in some larger sense about poetry <coughs> itself as being an initiation in, into some mysteries. Um, and Derek, the poem you just read, which is from your book Midsummer, brings together many of the elements that we recognize from your work, the Caribbean landscape, the speaker very much in the landscape, the new world, the classical Greece, you shall see transparent Helen pass like a candle flame. And at the end, there's an epiphany. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit, anything more about this poem and about the way poetry starts here and any other way it starts, or what initiation means. Oh, yeah. Um, what is the question? Well, <laughs> sorry, but um, this 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 poem is a, seems to me it's about the poem not starting in a sense. Chairs, I wait. Chairs sweat. Paper crumples the floor. A lizard gasps on the wall, and then there's an epiphany, and it's in the door light, and it's very important that it's not Nike. I I think the poem comes out of silence first. And that silence has to be made. But yet it can't be made artificially. You don't decide, I'm going to write a poem, I'll keep quiet, I'll write a poem. (laughs) The silence is made, this is everything like that sounds so affected. But the silence is made by the beginning of the poem itself. In other words, there's a prologue to the articulate, which is the silence. Before it becomes articulate, the silence creates the poem. Um, And then you have to be able to detect what's a phony silence. Mm. But this is not a real silence. This is the thing pretending to be a silence. So you write another bad poem. <laughs> um, but when it does happen, with luck, you arrive at a serenity that great poets have described, which is a stillness at the core of everything, everything around you that begins to articulate itself. And if you work in rhyme, then you're in for a panic because you can begin a poem in rhyme confidently, you know, etc., etc. So you get about four or five words, four or five beats, then you write the word, that's the end of the line. Then you do another line, you know, with another rhyme. Then you've got to do the third line, with the first one and that as you know is hell <laughs> so you're going on pretty well four, five, six and then you say oh shit here, com- here comes a rhyme what is it, etc <laughs> you know um, this is a process Rosanna knows because she's herself a very fine poet She'll give well thank you <laughs> I, I think what I'm saying is that um, I think in all the arts you have to recognize that silence that arrives and that we make, we as artists make those silences that may be false or treacherous or, but when they're real then they, luckily the work of art arrives. Thank you. Okay. That's so hopeful and beautiful. Thank you. Right. 
And Seamus, your oysters too seem to be about a quickening into verb. Yeah, well, oysters ends up with using the words poetry and freedom. Pretty big uh, abstractions. And on the whole, it's the kind of language I avoided for a long time. I was kind of afraid of it. And uh, in that particular poem, as in the poems we love, I was carried beyond what I expected from myself and ended up using this language, poetry, freedom, verb. Uh, I have to say that I usually consider myself a noun, basically. (laughs) But to to, to be transformed into a verb seemed to me to be the call of poetry. And uh, certainly, it was a moment when that poem marked from just uh, writing about poetry, writing poems which were about poetry, sure, but they were trim, as Mr. Beckett might have called them. And uh, this was not trim, at least. Mm -hmm. It was a surprise. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need. Yes. And you were surprised. You surprised yourself, or the poem surprised you in the process of its yeah. unfolding. Mm-hmm. The thing about silence is very good and true, but at the same time, uh, I think you have to be able to dwell in clamor as well, and that's the condition that we inhabit. And I think of young master Keats, who was a great fellow for company and carousing and all kinds of things. And, and his initiation came, uh, I mean, I think of him going home from that night with, I've forgotten who the friends were, but he read Chapman's Homer, or Chapman's Homer was read to him. He came home, he left at two in the morning, uh, came home around five, wrote a sonnet <laughs> in excitement, uh, and the excitement was born out of communality and and belief in the whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was important too. Yes. Comradeship, sisterhood, all that, mm-hmm. really important in the art. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Something else about this poem, Oysters, Seamus, I wanted to ask you about. It seems to me that there's a fulcrum in it from the fellowship where the characters in the poem are toasting friendship with these mm-hmm. oysters. And then you get the Romans, and they're hauling the oysters south to the glut of privilege and then the speaker of the poem is angry that my trust so suddenly the whole emotional temper of the poem changed and it seems a poem that seemed to be quite lighthearted and celebrating mm. a, a luxurious mm. smack on the palate is is quickening into verb in a very complex condition of conscience self mortification I'm not sure. it's, it's, well, it's very complicated it's, it's set in the west of Ireland with the Atlantic Ocean light coming up, the light of freedom or poetry. But it was written uh, in the mid-70s when the Northern Ireland Troubles were in full swing. And anybody from the North was then had a sense of shadow over their lives. And what happened uh, for people who roamed to the west of Ireland for pleasure and delight and is that uh, for a moment you're free of the shadow and you're in the light. And that is basically, I suppose, what, what the poem says. I, 
I want to handle all this, but I want to be free of it too. So I think it was a necessary poem at the time. Yes, yes, yes. Well, going from the question of initiation, I wanted to come back to this word master. I I named uh, our poets here masters. They are certainly to me masters. But I wanted to ask you both about your masters. And one master, I, I think you w- would say in different ways perhaps, um, that you'd be willing to think of that way would be Robert Lowell. So maybe starting with you, Derek, could you talk about what Lowell, Lowell's work has meant to you? And perhaps Lowell is a man, a presence, an imagination? Can I deal with the first part? Sure. And I'll come yeah. to Carl. Um, when I began, I had an exercise book in which I used to copy, copy poems stylistically. I'd model myself on doing a Hopkins, like Don Scotus, do the double rhyme, so forth, Auden, everybody. So I printed a book myself. There were no publishers. And uh, most of the people said, this man tries to write like everybody. Auden, Pound, Elliot. And of course, that was the point. (laughs) That I was trying to write like everybody. But this critic discovered that, right? (laughs) Anyway... So I kept this up for quite a while, and I'm still keeping it up. Yeah, I've still stolen from Haney a couple of times. Dante. Uh, <laughs> and then when they got tired of it, they said, what an original voice. <laughs> but the original voice had everybody in it. Um, including particularly Lowell. One of the things I remember about Lowell, which is very inconsequential now in a way, was dropping capitals at the line. Uh That was a very brave thing for me to do because I was in a particular school that had to have a capital letter at the beginning of every line. When I dropped the capital, it was like dropping my drawers in a sense. So you could start, you're going to start a sentence, a line with no capitals, it's going to be in lowercase. So lower, lower case, maybe lower case, <laughs> made me do, feel very, very, either liberated or stupid, I wasn't sure. But Carl Lowell, he was called, everybody knows this, but in case you don't, he was called... Carl as a shortened a Christian uh, nickname for Caligula. It's not too much of a you know, compliment because he had manic rages that he couldn't control. Too. I never saw Carl crazy. I sometimes felt he was on the edge of it a few times, but I never saw him conduct himself in any way else but as a very beautiful, gentle, genuinely angelic man when I knew him. The influence of everybody, too. He was an example of somebody who absorbed the influences as well. 
so that for me to be influenced by him was a natural thing. Luckily, I came from a poor island, in a sense, in which there weren't too many pretensions about being a poet, um, that the best you could do was to write as well as you could, etc. Also, it was a new experience to be a writer in the Caribbean, and it was extremely exciting. But what was exciting about it was this freedom to imitate, the freedom to plot your own career, not career, career was an obscene word that I you know, hardly use even now, but to decide that you were going to charge your apprenticeship thoroughly, learn to sound like Hopkins, learn to sound like everybody, and forget your own voice. Pastor Nack said it himself, this is not going to make me, I'm not saying I'm a great poet, I'm saying he said, Great poets have no time to be original. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Yeah. Seamus, how about Robert Lowell for you? Well, Lowell I read as an undergraduate in a book called The Penguin Book of American Verse. And uh, the Quaker graveyard in Nantucket was there, of course. And I regarded it as a canonical poem of the English language. And it, it was... Uh, within me and beyond me at the same time. And uh, I kept reading him and I rejoiced in the readings, but I think I didn't really feel any influence by Lowell until he wrote uh, Notebook and History and stuff like that the, for Lizzie and Harriet. So, so at that point, I felt uh, the need to break down something. And there was a kind of rage in the form of those blank sonnets, sonnets without rhyme, that kind of punched you in the face almost. Uh, and and uh, there is definitely uh, an influence of Lowell in a book called Fieldwork, which was in the, written in the 70s. I actually met Lowell uh, for the first time in 1972 in London. And then he came to Ireland. He lived in Ireland with, with his uh, wife, uh, Lady Caroline Blackwood. And uh, they used to come into Dublin every now and again and carouse a little bit and have a meal and so on. Uh, so, so we had a, a sense of being close to greatness in that way. But one of the things I've found about uh, meeting great ones... Uh, in the course of my life is that you don't need to talk about your own work or their work to them. You feel verified if they are taking you seriously at some level or if there's some flow between the two of you. And Lowell was so merry, ironical and slightly dangerous that if you were, um, you know, in his company and getting on with him, you felt, ah, there I am now, that's... That's, that's me and Carl, you know. We're, we're buddies. Uh, but um, I don't think he. I don't think he affected my writing so much. He certainly affected my sense of being a poet, whatever that means, being accepted just by the comitatus or the familia. 
And what else about him? Well, he once came to my wife and myself with three little children who were living in a small cottage uh, in County Wakelow. And Lowell at this time was with Lady Caroline and rather a grand house in, way down in Kent, Millgate. And it had, you know, there was a west wing and an east wing and so on. Anyway, Cal came into the house and the little ones were running about or vomiting about whatever they were doing. <laughs> and he, he said, ah, he always spoke with his hand too. Ah, you uh, see a lot of your children? <laughs> see a lot of your children? See a lot of Which we did. But he was... He was beloved. He conducted himself. He conducted himself like a great one, you know. Uh, actually, the, the poets who were my masters were maybe Petit Maitre, but Patrick Kavanagh, the Irish poet, was uh, very important to me. Get started. Ted Hughes was very important. Hopkins was very important. Uh, the first poems I wrote were complete Hopkins pastiche, you know. Starling thatch watches and sudden swallow straight breaks through sudden rib, rib roof rafter so and so so on. I could go on, but uh, no need. <laughs> yeah. Well, passing can to can another. Oh, sorry. Yes, please, please. Just add something. Um, he's not here now, so I'll talk about him. Um, <laughs> I think that. The great achievement for us reading in my time was how Haney avoided completely the hypnotic influence and almost unshakable influence of Yeats. So you couldn't expect any Irishman writing poetry not to sound like Yeats in a devotional way, true, sure, but also in a compulsive way. And Heaney didn't do that. And I think what happened that was interesting and amazing too was the originality of the pursuit that kept going on its own naughty style that had nothing to do with the rhetoric, if you want, of Yeats. And may have owed a lot rather to Patrick Kavanaugh, perhaps. But what happened was, I think, that the poetry got closer to the language after the whole warp of Yeatsian influence that everybody had, and that Larkin had even to his last, he had it. Heaney didn't have that, and whatever he seemed to be doing was very exciting and private. That's what I'm saying. You want to speak about Thank you very to much, that <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's only decorous that I should wait for a moment b- before praising Derek. <laughs> <laughs> it's only decorous. He's going to wait for a moment before praising you. <laughs> um, well, uh, what about while you're waiting to praise Derek? <laughs> while you're waiting to praise Derek? Yes. <laughs> um, perhaps we could talk about the English language as a medium. 
Um, Seamus, you've written eloquently in prose and verse about the hybrid nature of the English language and about, about, about Gaelic, about MacDiarmid Scott's Gaelic. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to throw a few words at you that come out of your poem, uh, Fosterling. And I had to go look these words up. And they're not in any, not any, they're not in easy dictionaries. So the words that I love, just for example, are glar, glit, and daily gone. And I would just love to hear you do a riff on glar, glit, and daily gone, (laughs) and and what they do for you. Well, glar is an Irish word, and it means thick, sticky mud. Uh, Glar, glit is related to glitter. It's the kind of thing that that uh, poor Tom talks about in the in the Heath scene of Lear, where he drinks the standing water. It's like uh, slime on water, glit, and I suppose there's a little glitter there somewhere also. Delagon is a Scots uh, word. Came over to Ireland, Northern Ireland, with the Scottish planters in the 17th century. So it's daylight going. It means the uh, uh, the twilight. So Delagon, and did I put them in uh, those words? And I, there was no note. It's a nice question whether to put notes at the end or not. You know, uh, if you put notes at the end, you're canonizing yourself to some extent. Uh, and, on the other hand, if you don't put notes, you are puzzling the reader, and that's perfectly all right. Well, look, perfectly all right. There are dictionaries. Yeah. Um, well, but, some of the, those but, mightn't come up in dictionaries. That's, that's the other well, problem. Yeah. Yeah. But um, perhaps this goes back to Hopkins or anything else about the, the larger sense of the textures of English that you've been trying to bring into English, your English. Well, I suppose that uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry did mean something to me. I, I heard it in my own way, perhaps, but uh, the melancholy and the actual uh, melody of it, the weather, more the emotional weather of Anglo-Saxon, when I was a student, meant a lot to me. And Hopkins was a straight link through yeah. to that. And, uh, uh, well, then there was Joyce. Uh, the, Language question in Ireland until well, maybe 30, 40 years ago was uh, it was bound up with the Irish historical experience of breaking away from Britain, the uh, establishment of the Irish Free State, and the Free State tries to establish the Irish language as the spoken idiom of the country. Rather, the way Israel was able to make Hebrew their language, it didn't work, but the ideological pressure was strong right through to very recently. So that if you grew up in Ireland, and especially in my case in Northern Ireland, where being a nationalist involved you with fidelity to things Irish rather than things British, the, the language question was preeminent and there was always a pressure, uncon- not unconscious, just half conscious. There was a pressure saying, English is not really your language. Uh, you, know, you lost your language 
oh, you know, 19th century. And, uh, and there was a whole cultural uh, nexus hanging around that position. But Mr. Joyce, when you came up and reread him and came to your senses, had dealt with all that. I mean, Joyce just reminded you that Irish experience uh, and English language uh, was no problem. All you had to do was be good at it, good at the language. So, um, and he is, there are many famous scenes which we will not rehearse here of Joyce and so on. The other thing to say is that the Irish language is now thriving in a different way, even though it didn't, it, it wasn't successful as a, a renewal for the whole country. In the last 20 years or so, the language has become an artistic medium, and there are very good writing in Irish, in the North and the South, and the old uh, apartheid between uh, English, Irish, and the pressure to do it well in the Irish is, is gone. Uh, speaking of Yeats, Yeats gave a soothing uh, remark to Irish writers. He said late in his life, when he was being castigated for not having Irish, and he certainly didn't have it, he said, Irish is my national language, but English is my mother tongue. That's the kind of thing that made him disliked in Dublin. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And Derek, um, not only have you written in so many different kinds of dialects and made them come uh, onto the page uh, from the islands, but you also often turn language in your poems into something very physical, like this line, the rigidly metered early rising rain, where sometimes language, the English language, say in your poems, turns into rain or it turns into soil or it turns into a wave of the sea. So I'm just curious to have you say anything that you want about the English language and how, how it uses you, how you use it. I think every poet is bilingual. Of course, there's an ordinary language that we talk, and there's an interior language which immediately makes us bilingual anyway. In my particular case, uh, I am bilingual in the sense that there is French Creole and there's English. And then, of course, there are divisions inside English of Trinidadian, Jamaican, St. Lucian, and so on. And then there's a French Creole, which itself may have divisions. But French Creole is a dialect. It can't work to describe it a dialect because to me it's a language. Mm-hmm. And to everyone else, it is a language. And it's a totally different language. But we are more than bilingual. We are like trilingual or quadrilingual because we speak French Creole, which is a language now, and the dialect that may be in French Creole, that may be St. Lucian Creole, Mm -hmm. and so forth. So there are several divisions that happen. When people ask me, why don't you write in your own language? I said, English is my language. 
because I do not think in Creole. If I thought in Creole, I would write it. My instinct, my articulation does not come out in French Creole. So I write in what is articulated, dictated virtually to me by what's inside me. And it's not French Creole. Naturally, I use it, and it's a terrific thing. And I once tried to, not tra- to translate a poem, uh, an English poem of a certain you know, tightness, into French Creole and to try to keep the tightness of the quatrain together. And it was enormously exciting to do that. Because not only did that happen, I thought, Jesus, there's a metaphor. That's, the metaphor changed. Uh-huh. This happens a lot working with Joseph Brodsky. We'll talk about him. The, when he changed the metaphors, not only the translation, the metaphors would change yes. in translation. Mm-hmm. So there, there may be a feeling of a different kind of metaphor within the dialect language, yeah. Yeah. right? Which yeah. is exciting. So my excitement is still to write in that language or to adapt it for, especially in the theater, it works. It works more easily in the theater because in the theater, a character is given the language. It's not your language, it's not you speaking. Yes. It's another character yep. speaking. Yeah. But you've invented characters like Shabine in the schooner flight who speak in a kind of a, yeah. uh, but these are a mixed. dialect. You see, somebody would tell you it's not authentic Trinidadian. Yeah. It's mixed, you know, yeah. it's kind of Jamaican mixed with Trinidadian and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you spoke of Joseph Brodsky, and that was my next question, and it picks up on something, Seamus, you said earlier about the, the brotherhood and the sisterhood of poetry. Uh, so let's, there's, there's somebody missing here. It's Joseph Brodsky who should be with these two. Mm. They, in all the years... Us, when we were young men, we saw you three as our, our, local, uh, our local masters. And so I would just invite you both to, to talk about Joseph. I learned one thing from Joseph. By the time I met him, let's say, I hate to use such words, but it's true. I had some kind of reputation as a writer. So I met him as a known writer. But I wasn't working until I met him. What do you mean you weren't working? Well, I went, Joseph worked every day, and he worked every day on poetry. Now, decent people don't do that in English. <laughs> you know, Europeans do that. Yeah. But nobody brought up in the English tradition would write verse every day, you know. That's embarrassing. <laughs> but he was a writer. That's what he did. So I realized that I was hanging out. You know, I was liming. I wasn't doing any work. And then I watched Joseph work, and I said, this is what you better do, you idiot. You know, get down and really work. So he was this example of industry. I realized later that the phenomenon of his industry was based on his fear of death. It's based on the fear of a heart attack all the time. You know, so he lived with that. But the example of that was... His intolerance of idiocy, really, he, he couldn't stand stuff that he didn't like, and he would tell you that, you know. So he taught me how to be, I don't know, irascible. 
<laughs> you didn't already know? <laughs> well, no. I mean, professionally irascible. <laughs> but obviously, um, people have written criticizing Joseph as a poet in English, which I don't do because I think that he added to the language by the translation that he did, because you can say, oh, well, this is not an English poem. Of course it is not an English poem. It is a poem in English written by a Russian, okay? Is that okay with you in your democracy, you know? Uh, I first encountered Joseph on his way to this country. It was 1972, I think it was a... uh, Poetry International Festival in London. Uh, Joseph had landed in uh, Austria with Auden. Auden was reading in the Poetry Festival in London, and Joseph was with him, kind of red-haired and red shirt, and uh, terrifically chic glamour. Somebody escaping from Soviet behind the Iron Curtain and in London that night, but. Also at that time, because of the killing and so on, Belfast had a certain chic glamour. So, so, so I, I could see him looking at me and I was looking at him and, and we kind of greeted at some point. But then quite soon after that, I went to Massachusetts uh, to a poetry festival and Joseph read and boom, boom. Uh, the, uh, the experience of listening to that undoubting voice uh, just was extraordinary and then gradually through meetings in um, Ann Arbor places uh, I got to know him and he, he was as Derek was saying he was kind of acted the boss poet you know that you, sh- you should be doing this and the X is the great one and Y well but the astonishing thing was his familiarity and at homeness in English poetry, in standard English poetry at the end. And there was nobody more instructive to talk with and nobody more exciting to talk with about poets, about poets that, like, from John Donne up to Robert Frost and Thomas Hardy, right through to the present day. Uh, So what I got from Joseph was the example of somebody totally devoted to the art, and uh, honest, and as Derek said, not prepared to suffer fools gladly, not only in print, but face to face. And I have to say that having seen that in action, I inclined to suffer them a bit. <laughs> the alternative. Yeah. Yes. I think I'll ask one more question and ask each of you to read a final poem. And the I guess the question I wanted to ask was about the relationship to the Greek and Roman classics. Um, so, um, Seamus, you've, you've translated two plays of Sophocles, but when I think of you and the classics, I, I most deeply think of you and the poet Virgil. You've written eclogues, you've, in many different poems, you've rewritten parts of the Aeneid or even translated passages. Yeah. You talk about initiation, you've reimagined the golden bough. Yeah. So I would love to hear you talk about Virgil. Well, Virgil was a set book when I was a lad in sixth form. Uh, but the, our teacher, the set book was book nine of the Aeneid. 
But our teacher kept saying over and over again for that year, Ah, boys, I wish it were book six. (laughs) And this had more effect on me than anything else in the class. And uh, the older I got, the more I went back to book six. And uh, Virgil is actually, as you well know, it's very difficult to translate, to get an idiom again that is true to Virgil, very hard. But uh, I'd, I had a shot at book six, but I, I did a couple of the eclogues, yes. The thing about, about book six is that it's everybody's book in the sense that you, you want to go down to the underworld to meet the father and... Uh, you know, encounter the shades of the of the beloved uh, and the deserted. Uh, the number of people there. There's Dido, and there's uh, the father, and the person I love almost most in it is Polyneurus, the guy who is a he's a helmsman, and he's washed overboard. And he isn't uh, buried. Well, he isn't buried, therefore he can't get into the Elysian fields. He can't get across the sticks. So, I don't know. It's the, it's the mortality and, and lacrimae rerum, the, the, the tears of things in Virgil. I'm just at the minute reading Ovid and I'm realizing... Uh, of it in translation, I assure you. The very different, very different writer altogether. And uh, obviously, poor old Virgil was suffering from his own majesty. <laughs> the ones who came after him were, were taking, writing a completely different yes. thing. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's the tenderness and the, and the sense of the living and the dead commingling it. It's lovely. Yes. And there's something also in the poems in the poems that you've written that are eclogues. They're not translations of Virgil. They're your own eclogues. They, there's a sense of communing with the rural Virgil, but there's the epic Virgil in some of your other poems that are more quickened by a sense of epic sorrow in maybe the Northern exactly. Irish experience. So yeah. you, 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 you've, there are several Virgils in your work. Well, there's also the, the Virgil who leads Dante around. Yes. And he's a pretty important figure. Yeah, yeah. But um, my problem is that I can't find a noise for the big book, you know, Mm. for the the actual... You've thought of translating the whole Aeneid? No, never. I I just thought that's what you meant by a noise for the big book. (laughs) No, well, I've had a go at doing the whole of book six, Mm. but that's hard enough, you know. (laughs) So yeah. I think the golden bow is such a beautiful It image. is, and you've done it beautifully. Yeah. And it brings us back to initiation yeah. and the mysteries. Right. Yes. So Derek, what about, I, I would ask you about you and Homer, because you've been rewriting Homer, you made a play of the Odyssey, you've written Omeros, and, but constantly in your lyric poems, you're saying it's not Nike, but a girl knocking sand from her door in the frame, um, knocking sand from her sandal, uh, or you, you're both having your cake and eating too. Or as you said in in, in um, the Gulf, um, 
The classics can console, but not enough. It's very complicated, these, this Homeric world for, for your imaginative world. The Homeric thing is kind of cliche and obvious. We have an archipelago, which means a lot of seas. We have ships, schooners traveling between islands. Every island is different. And every island coming out of the sea any time of day or night is totally magical to see. Um, but at each island, there's a different story, right? Each history of each island is different. So that's very much like the Odyssey. And of course, all the lies that Odysseus tells are part of the histories of these islands because you get all that bullshit also <laughs> from, from the islands. Um, I have repeatedly told people I am not a Homeric scholar. I have never read the Iliad. <laughs> never. It's embarrassing how ignorant I am. But all these guys slicing heads, you know, I didn't get to that too much. What is very strong in Homer, I don't want to start it. It's hard to imagine that the prose Homer that we have was in verse, because the prose can be so continuous that parts of it have got to have been in prose for me, because the descriptions of the storms in the Odyssey are not like rhythm that stops at the end of a line. And the, the continuous description of the tactile and physical thing of water and rocks and stuff. Um, okay, if that is in the pentameter, whatever the meter is, or hexameter or whatever, then, then it's phenomenal. But the syntax that we get, we get to translate Homer in is contemporary syntax. It is not the syntax of the piece. I don't think you can get that. So that anything we do in translation of Homer has got to be immediately contemporary. And that's the immediacy that I feel that exists in the Odyssey. But I also feel that he's a very good writer in the sense of Hemingway's description of what nature should be. And that the descriptions of the storm in the Odyssey, a pure Hemingway, right? But they're in verse, and that's the fascination. The fascination is, what is this rhythm, right, that's there? It is so colloquial as description, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's my fascination with it. It's not in the story so much, not in the epic aspect of the story, right? Um, and that's why he'll always be present for a writer, because he's so present mm -hmm. in terms of the physical thing. Well, let's conclude by asking each of our poets to, to read. Um, uh, Seamus, would you read Postscript, which seems like a good post-poem yeah. to <laughs> conclude with? This is another poem about driving into the west of Ireland for refreshment and renewal. Uh, 
and sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare along the flaggy shore in September or October when the wind and the light are working off each other so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter and inland among stones the surface of a slate-grey lake is lit by the earth-lightening of a flock of swans, their feathers roughed and ruffling, white on white, their fully grown, headstrong-looking heads, tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there. A hurry through which known and strange things pass as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. The Last Empire. And then there was no more empire all of a sudden. Its victories were air, its dominions dirt, Burma, Canada, Egypt, Africa, India, the Sudan, the map that had seeped its stain on a schoolboy's shirt like a red ink on a blotter, battles, long sieges, dows and felucas, hill stations, outposts, flags fluttering down in the dusk. Their golden aegis went out with the sun, the last gleam on a great crag. With tiger-eyed turbans, Sikhs, pennons of the Raj to a sobbing bugle. I see it all come about again, the tasseled cortege, the clop of the tossing team with funereal pom-poms, the sergeant major's shout, the stamp of boots than the volley. There is no greater theme than this chasm deep surrendering of power, the whited eyes and robes of surrendering hordes, red tunics and the great names, Sindh, Turkestan, Cornpaw, dust dervishes and the Sahara, Saharan silence afterwards. A dragon flies by plain settles, and there on the map, the archipelago looks as if a continent fell and scattered into fragments from Point de Cap to Mulashik, Boacano, Laurier Canel, canoe wood, spicy laurels, the wind churned trees echo the African crests at night. The stars are far fishermen's fires not glittering cities, Genoa, Milan, London, Madrid, Paris, but crab hunters' torches. This small place produces nothing but beauty, the wind-warped trees, the breakers, the breakers on the Denary cliffs, and the wild light that loosens a galloping mare on the plain of Beaufort make us merely receiving vessels of each day's grace. Light simplifies us whatever our race or gifts. I'm content as Kavanaugh with his few acres for my heart to be torn to shreds 
like the sea's lace, to see how its wings catch color when a gull lifts. Pure Haney. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're done. Here we go. I think we should go. Thank you, Rosanna. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Seamus. What a great night. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.